If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Though I'm sure most of you don't uh, actually need the Bible in front of you. It's found on page 541 in your pew Bible. This wonderful masterpiece that is Psalm 23. We're going to do something a little differently with it tonight. I pray and trust that it will be a blessing to you and maybe open up uh, sides to this psalm, aspects of this psalm that would not have occurred to you before. So I pray the Lord's blessing on what we'll do together. Please stand as I read to you Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we pray now that through the preaching of your word, you would cause us to lay down beside streams of rest, rivers of gladness that flow from your word, that you would nourish us and strengthen us and even prepare us for the moment of our death, that you would strengthen us in every way and cause us to look to you and with joy to look to heaven, our eternal home. Strengthen then your people tonight in the study of your word, and feed us here, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes, sometimes famous things do not live up to their reputation. We've all experienced this disappointment at some time in our lives, We've gone to a movie, you know, everyone told you this movie was the greatest movie ever, or we have gone to a concert or a tourist location, and instead of being blown away, we're just sort of mildly impressed. It was okay, we say. It was lovely even, but not extraordinary. It failed to leave a mark on us. The sad reality is that sometimes things look better at a distance, but then up close, They don't live up to their reputation. They don't match the hype. But Psalm 23 is not like that. Psalm 23's reputation for greatness is well-deserved. Unlike those disappointments in your experience, the more time you spend in this psalm, the more you will see its incredible depth and beauty. It is a stunning masterpiece, theologically personally and historically, and it does all this in just six verses. In this way, it's a little like da Vinci's Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is not, by any means, the biggest thing that da Vinci painted. It's not the most impressive thing he painted. But over time, that simple painting of a woman smiling has become the symbol of his whole career. 
In the same way, David has written epic psalms, huge psalms, full of love, anguish, trust, and praise. But over time, this brilliant little six-verse masterpiece has become his most famous and beloved poem. Recently, high-tech cameras have allowed scholars to study the Mona Lisa in new ways. Using these cameras, scholars can now see the many layers that make up the portrait. Da Vinci, it turns out, did not simply sit and paint the Mona Lisa. Rather, he layered it. He started with an almost translucent layer and then added color, depth, and lighting as he went. What we see today, the finished project, is actually the result of layering. Yes, it's one unified portrait, but its beauty and fame are the result of meticulous layering. In the same way, Psalm 23, when you begin to study it deeply, is a layered masterpiece. David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote the psalm so that it could be used in many different settings. It always, always remains one psalm, one great message. But like the Mona Lisa, that one great portrait has incredible depth to it. So tonight, we're going to do something a little different. Instead of going verse by verse, or section by section, as we normally do, I want to go layer by layer with you. As you're about to see, to fully appreciate this masterpiece, it needs to be read and sung from different angles. We're going to put this psalm into the mouths of different people and see how it shines and how those layers build together. My hope and prayer is that this will be enlightening for you, as it was for me. But I don't just want us to learn new facts tonight. I hope that each layer will add to the praise and worship we offer God through this psalm. This is not just art. It is art. Let's not forget that. But it is art for the sake of worship. It is liturgical art. And so may God deepen our praise with each layer With each layer, may he show to us more of his goodness and glory. So here we go. Layer one. Layer one is simply, the Lord is Israel's shepherd. The Lord is Israel's shepherd. Our first reading or layer focuses on Psalm 23 as an expression of Israel's faith in the God who saved them from Egypt and led them like a flock through the wilderness and eventually brought them to the restful waters and green pastures of the promised land. This is how this liturgical masterpiece would have been experienced and sung for a thousand years. This is how Jesus would have sung it as a boy. How do we see this in the text? Well, let's start with the human author. David. David, remember, is an avid reader of scripture. He tells us that the law of God is his constant meditation day and night. He probably by now, probably by now, he has his own handwritten, self-handwritten copy of Torah, 
which is the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Ingrained then in David, deep in his mind and his heart, are the stories of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He also meditates daily on the exodus from Egypt and the priestly feasts and activities that came out of that great redemption. So when he writes this psalm, no surprise, and when he writes all of his psalms, again, no surprise, he borrows concepts, words, and ideas from the Torah, from his Bible, the Bible he has in his lap. The priests and the people for a thousand years who sang this psalm would have noticed the language of the Torah, the language of their history. They would have seen this psalm not just, not just as an expression of their personal journey or walk with God, but an expression of their journey together as a people. This psalm then, if you can understand this, this psalm is a kind of miniature covenant history of Israel. In fact, the very first phrase of the psalm draws us back into Israel's history, into one of its most defining moments. David writes in verse 1, Yahweh, or the name, we don't know how to pronounce it accurately, but I'll say Yahweh for sake of clarity tonight, but the name, or Yahweh, is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yahweh is not just some name. It's the covenant name of God gifted to his people through Moses at the Exodus, at their redemption. It is a revelation given to Moses during his ordination at the burning bush. The name Yahweh means something like, I am what I am. And in context, God is telling Israel that I am the same God whom in Abraham trusted And my promises and covenants to him and the fathers are still sure because I don't change and I'm not dependent on anyone else. Now, to our modern ears, this is no big deal. We share our name. We share our name with everyone, especially on social media. But in the Old Testament, God's name is a revelation of his nature the name is, just, is not just a name, but an insight into God's character. Not only that, but Yahweh's name now becomes the basis for all Israel's prayers and worship. They aren't just praying to a generic deity. Rather, now they are specifically calling on their covenant God. As Moses comes to the people, he takes this name with him, and he tells the people that they will be redeemed from Egypt and saved from death because Yahweh is who he is. David then calls Yahweh a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now that might not set off fireworks for us, but it would have done so for the people who sang this for a thousand years. Here's why. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were shepherds by trade. When the people went down to Egypt, they moved into the land of Goshen because they were shepherds. And the Egyptians, like many cultures at the time, did not like shepherds, animals, smells. But being shepherds was a key part of their national identity. It was who they were. 
If you were here for our study of the fathers, you remember I went through Genesis and we looked at some of the fathers, you'll recall all these shepherding moments from that history. Remember how Jacob fought to get herds from his father-in-law, Laban. Remember how Abraham and Lot ran out of room, out of grazing lands for their herds, and they had to separate. Shepherd thinking was deep in their spiritual DNA. David could not have picked a more powerful image for a people so closely linked to the world of herding animals. David probably, almost certainly, knew by heart the wonderful blessing that dying Jacob gave to Joseph's two sons, his favorites. Genesis 48, 15, 16, read this way. And Jacob blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. So right away, David is citing the covenant of God with his people at the Exodus. He's reminding himself and them, all the people that would worship with this psalm, that their shepherd has never been an earthly prince, but has always been God himself. Lots of ancient people think people like uh, Hammurabi and others, they all claim to be shepherds of their people, But here David, the great king, is confessing the very heart of Judaism. Yahweh is the true shepherd of his people. He leads them, he feeds them, he defends them, and he saves them. Verse 2 also resonates with Israel's history. After the exodus from Egypt, remember how Israel wanders in the wilderness? Here you have this massive flock of people, the herds of the Lord, they need to eat. They constantly need what? Fresh water and grasslands. Ultimately, the provision of water from the rock and manna each morning allows them to survive. Psalm 78 celebrates this moment in Israel's history. The psalmist writes this, he struck down, speaking of God, every firstborn in Egypt the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. So David uses here in verse 2 the language of the promised land. The promised land, of course, is the land flowing with milk and honey and the still waters of verse 2. In Hebrew, it's waters of rest, restful waters. And rest, you know, being a word used throughout the Torah to describe what God did for his people and bringing them into the land, he gave them rest. So our first layer is the Lord is Israel's shepherd. For a thousand years, Israel would sing this psalm in public worship and remember their history, the history of God's great acts of redemption. As American Christians, It's incredibly easy for us to skip this layer of meaning. We often want to skip ahead to Jesus or to ourselves. Now that tendency we have as Americans to skip ahead to an individual, 
whether me individually or Christ individually, it's not altogether wrong because as we've seen in our study of the Psalms, the Psalms do find their yes and amen in Christ. And this Psalm is deeply personal and individual. However, the Psalm was written and sung in a way that is designed to give us the big picture as well. So when we sing or read this Psalm, let's remember the rich history of God's faithfulness that David is invoking. Also, let's look around the room, as it were, and realize that this is our experience together. This psalm expresses God's faithful care to his whole church, to the fathers who were shepherds, to shepherd his people out of Egypt, and even the shepherding he's doing tonight here at Grace Presbyterian. That is our first layer The Lord is Israel's. You could put there, the Lord is the church in every generation. He is their shepherd. The second layer is the one we all notice immediately when we read this psalm. Many of us have probably never even thought there were any other layers. The second layer is the obvious one. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, this is a personal psalm that celebrates the way God leads each individual believer throughout their life. In fact, David wrote it in a way that it has to be personal. Even if you're singing it in a congregation of thousands of people, it doesn't matter how many people are around you, it becomes personal as you sing it because all throughout the psalm, and this is somewhat unusual, it does happen, but it's somewhat unusual, David just uses persistently first-person pronouns. 3,000 years later, we still use those pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. He makes me to lie down. You prepare a table for me. It's not a psalm you can just sing in theory or about something God did long ago. It demands identification. It forces us to say, this is true for me. This strong personal element, the Lord is my shepherd, the strong personal element is rooted in what David is doing in this psalm personally. David here is unwinding his own history, isn't he? David is thinking back to his days as a shepherd, how God called him into kingship, how God preserved him while on the run from Saul, where? In the wilderness, led about like a lamb. Maybe David is even thinking back to the killing of Goliath when he used a shepherd's weapon, a sling, to kill that battle tank of a warrior. David is looking back over his life and seeing the common thread. This shepherd theme that God has woven into his whole story, it's a deeply personal psalm. Maybe the second layer, this personal layer, is most clearly seen in verse 4. David writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hebrew scholars have noticed how in this verse, verse 4, God changes positions as it were. In the first three verses, God is pictured as the shepherd leading the flock from the front, choosing wise paths, leading to good pasture lands. 
In those verses, David writes, he, look up there, he is my shepherd. But then suddenly, notice in verse 4, as the lamb, David, steps into the dark valley, the language in Hebrew changes, and suddenly the shepherd is by his side. David writes, you are beside me, you are with me. David even looks to the weapons of his shepherd for comfort. The rod and staff are the equipment of the shepherd. The staff is used for guiding the sheep or as a walking stick. The rod is probably a mace or a club for close contact killing. For centuries, and still to this day in some countries like England, kings and emperors use scepters, a kind of club, to designate themselves as shepherds. And if you grew up in a high church environment, a Roman Catholic church, or maybe an Episcopal church, you've probably seen a pastor or a bishop using a staff. Here's the point. After being a shepherd and then becoming the shepherd of Israel, David's confession here is profound and personal. In this, his most famous psalm, he is given a brilliant insight into his whole life. He realizes... If he hadn't realized it before, he realizes it here that all along, all along, he says, I was never really the shepherd, was I? I was always the lamb. Or in the words of our hymn, I am Jesus' little lamb. You see, David had come to realize what all those days of preparation were about, those long days in the wilderness watching the sheep, those long nights in the wilderness avoiding Saul, it was all there to get him to this confession, to teach him and show him that God is his shepherd, even as God was making him the shepherd king, the ideal Israelite shepherd king. This is a psalm, then, for deep personal confession, a way of saying, God has cared for me all my life. And this message echoes through all of Scripture. Isaiah 43 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Or think of David's words in Psalm 139. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now just think for a moment how all these personal insights have been intensified for us as believers in Christ. Jesus is, as we just heard, the good shepherd. He knows us by name. He lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is unveiling to us the most personal relationship imaginable. Psalm 23 was already glorious, but on this side of the cross, it is now all lit up with joy and glory. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the world of David, shepherds came in at least two varieties. Sometimes the shepherds were just hired hands. The owner of the herds, once he became a man of some wealth, he didn't want to spend his nights and days out in the wilderness finding pasture, smelling of animals, and fighting off wild beasts. So he hired men to do this work. As Jesus noted in John 10, a hired hand might do an okay job, 
but he wasn't about to give his life for someone else's sheep. And to be fair, he wasn't paid enough to do that. But then there were other shepherds, men like David and Moses, who cared for their family's flocks. In other words, their whole personal livelihood was wrapped up in those animals. These were the men who would know and they would count every lamb every night. These were the men who would give their lives for the sheep. David here and Jesus and John are revealing the kind of shepherd God is for us. He is a shepherd near to us, an owner of the lambs, who takes deep personal interest in each and every lamb. He rejoices when just one lamb is returned to the fold. Psalm 23 is often, you'll know, used at funerals because it has that personal feel, the feel of someone looking back over life's long journey and seeing the care of God in the good times and the bad. In fact, the relationship is so close that even in death, the shepherd is right there. Just as the shepherd will leave 99 and go after just one lost sheep, so the death of even one lamb is important to the shepherd. Kidner, one of the great commentators on the Psalms, Dr. Kidner writes this, only the Lord can lead a man or a woman through death. All other guides turn back, and the traveler must go on alone. The sad reality is that at death, no one is fully with you. The old quote is true, even if we're not sure who said it first. The old quote goes like this, you may live with others, you may live with others, but everyone dies alone. In other words, you may be surrounded by friends and family. I hope you are. I hope you have that experience at your death. But as philosophers and theologians have long noted, everyone dies alone. The people around you are not dying with you. Death is the loneliest experience. But for the believer, you will not be alone even in the valley of the shadow of death. You will look. And suddenly, by your side is the shepherd, his familiar rod, his familiar staff. They will comfort you, and you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. So we've seen two layers to this Mona Lisa masterpiece. First, it is a powerful account of God's care for Israel. It evokes the greatest moments of their history. And so when the people gathered together in the temple and they sang this psalm, they were confessing their national identity, their shared history as God's flock, going all the way back to their shepherd founders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we do that too. When we sing it together, we shouldn't just think about our own journey, but about how God has moved his whole people up to their true home. Second, although it is corporate and has corporate dimensions, it's also and remains deeply personal. There's no crevice of life or death where the shepherd is absent. The psalm is a journey or pilgrimage psalm. It tracks our lives as we go from life to death and then to eternal life. Jesus, as our good shepherd, is always with us, and he knows every lamb. No one can take us out of his hand, not even death. But there is a third important layer, and not just because sermons need three points. 
But there's another third important layer. We've seen that Yahweh is Israel's shepherd, that Yahweh is my shepherd individually. Now, lastly, see here that Yahweh is also the Messiah's shepherd. Yahweh is the king of Israel's shepherd, the anointed king's shepherd. What does that mean? Psalm 23 is David's confession of how God led him as the chosen king, the anointed or Messiah of God's people. David is reflecting on the care Yahweh gave in bringing him to the throne of Israel. Everyone can relate. Everyone can use this psalm. Don't get me wrong. But originally, it was song about the king's experience. And not just any king, but the man after God's own heart, Israel's greatest shepherd. So when Jesus is born as the Messiah, as Jesus sings Psalm 23 over himself in worship and in private, the psalm ends up being Jesus' psalm more than even David's psalm. What was true for David in a partial, preliminary way, as a shadow, as a type, is now true for Jesus in a final, perfect way. We could put it this way. Psalm 23 came fully true in Jesus' life. The psalm finds its yes and amen in Jesus' life. It is about him ultimately and finally. David, as the lesser Messiah, experienced God's shepherding care. Absolutely. But Jesus, as the greater David and the ultimate Messiah, also had this experience. So many things here, if you think about it, so many things here in this text point us to a greater fulfillment. For example, as you may know, Psalm 23 comes to us as part of a group of psalms. Uh, scholars have long noticed that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 go together. They were put in this order. They all uh, have missing and, and, and connected pieces that we pick up on. And they tend to be grouped together in themes. And we know that these are all, both 22 and 24, highly, highly messianic poems. We've already seen that by the end of Psalm 22, we saw Christ's crucifixion. David, is, uh, as a king, imagines himself handed over for execution. And by the end of that psalm, the Davidic king is being handed all the nations of the world, as we saw last week. David could not have imagined that he would literally experience that. He's clearly speaking of what will be through his line, through his dynasty. Psalm 22 even predicts that crucifixion life death, a method of execution that didn't even exist in David's day. So David is very much in prophet mode in Psalm 22. The same is true in Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, we have a perfect Israelite king ascending the temple mound with his clean hands and receiving ultimate blessing from God. With this righteous king comes the Lord himself, and so the gates are opened for the king of glory. Here's the point. David, in all these psalms, is thinking, he is thinking of his own experience. But as a prophet, he is aware that what happens to him is a shadow of something bigger that is to come. The Jews knew this, 
And so they categorize the entire book of Psalms as a prophetic book. So in this group of highly prophetic, highly messianic Psalms, David is not just writing for himself, but also for what the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, will experience. So Psalm 23 is ultimately the experience of Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah. It is a psalm that we should hear in Jesus' mouth. It tells of his journey as God's chosen king. And it does track a journey, doesn't it? Psalm 23 is often called a pilgrimage psalm. It tracks a journey. Maybe you've noticed this before. You start moving through the pasture lands and rivers of Israel, finding rest along the way. Then in the center, you enter the dark ravines that surround Jerusalem. And finally, the journey ends with a never-ending banquet in God's house. Scholars have noted over the years how this pathway, this journey, sounds a lot like the path a lamb would take as it goes to Jerusalem for use in the temple. We can almost imagine a lamb taking this path, this journey, as it is born in Bethlehem, is led into the deep ravines, emerging at the temple in time for the great feast. The connection to Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, can't be missed. Above all else, this is his journey. When we uncover this layer, so many of David's words take on new and deeper meaning. In verse 5, for example, David rejoices in God who anoints his head with oil. This is probably a reference to Samuel's anointing of David as king. The oil, though, represented the coming of the Holy Spirit on David to empower him, to make him the anointed, and to empower him to be God's king. The word anointed, as you probably know, is the word Messiah. Now fast forward with me to the Jordan River. Jesus comes and is baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. The Gospels add an important detail we often skip over. The Spirit, it says, descended and remained. In other words, Jesus had not just been touched by the Spirit, as David would have been. No, Jesus has in his anointing received the oil of the Spirit without measure. As John had told the people, there is one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. David also says here of his experience as king that his cup runs over. In other words, the provision of verse 2 of the grass and the calm waters has evolved into an even greater level of life. A feast is now spread. Wine is in abundance. Wine is overflowing. And so how did Jesus begin his ministry? By making a super abundance of wine. The days of Messiah are the days of feasting. And Messiah spreads a table for us where he becomes the overflowing cup and he becomes the never-ending bread. We could add so much more here, but let me just bring it together now. David says, as God's a special anointed king, I experienced God's shepherding care. He met my needs, 
with grass and restful waters. He restored or revived me when I was failing. Then in death he was beside me. Now I look forward to life eternal, a never-ending feast where I will never be out of God's presence again. That journey, that pattern, is the experience of all God's people together, all God's people individually, and above all, it is the story of Jesus. It is life leading to death, to life more abundant and free. And that is the basic pattern of all of Scripture and of all of our lives. Life, death, abundant life. That is the flow of Scripture. And that's the journey of this psalm. It is the big story of the whole of the Bible. I hope all this has opened up for you a psalm that feels at times so familiar, we may have thought we already knew all that it had to say, when in fact it is so very deep and layered. But we haven't just done this study to learn, not done it just to learn. We've done it to worship. We aren't done. We haven't really even started until this psalm becomes the spirit-empowered instrument to bring about worship in our hearts and lives. This is for worship. It is not a portrait in a museum. And since scripture tells us that all of life is worship, we can also say we've done this study tonight for life, for living, for Christian living. It has to come into your heart and life in order to be real worship. So let me do a little of that with you tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you're just overwhelmed with life. You're basically healthy. Your life is full. You're surrounded by others, but there are numerous enemies and disappointments. This psalm calls us to look back at the long journey of Israel and see how God has been faithful to his people, to his whole flock, you can think back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They struggled. They struggled with money. They struggled with finding spouses. They struggled to get along with family members. They were afflicted by wars and illness around them. This psalm can comfort you as you remind yourself that God has been doing this for a very long time. Maybe when we sing it next time, you'll even sneak a look around you around the room or around scripture and see older members of the congregation, saints who've come before, and think about how God has led us all, all our lives, all our journey. Or maybe you feel differently tonight. You feel forgotten by God and abandoned. Maybe even death is drawing near, that loneliness of all experiences. This psalm speaks to that experience with such love and tenderness, assuring us that we will never be alone, not even in death. Maybe someone near you is near death. If they are a believer, what better worship than this worship? What better psalm for them and for you? As the Spirit gives you strength, maybe you can help them see the Savior is near there, you might say to them, there, look, it's his familiar rod. It's his familiar staff. Above all else, whatever else we might hear or see, whatever your struggle tonight, listen to your Savior as he sings this psalm. Look upon him by faith. 
He is anointed beyond measure. Look to the Father's house. Look to the Father's house where the Lamb's wedding feast is spread, where the Lamb becomes the shepherd. Look to his pierced hands as he holds out to you the cup of life, a cup running over. Listen to his voice singing the psalm, and then you will know peace. He is telling you, in these sweet notes, you can trust me for the journey. I will bring you home. In my Father's house are many rooms. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, this is our experience together as a church. It is the experience of all those who've come before. It is the experience of us each individually. And most importantly, it is a revelation of what was true for our Savior. How we thank you that even now his cup runs over And even now he spreads for his people in the presence of all their enemies a table, a table that will never run dry and never run short. Help us to look to him and to be radiant tonight and to know that he will be with us through this whole journey. We thank you, Father, for this assurance. You have used Psalm 23, maybe more than any passage of scripture, to comfort your people in the past, comfort your people now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.